With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. It's time for another edition of Tennis.com's weekly podcast. And here's your host, James Martin. Welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. Um, I'm James Martin with Peter Bodo and Steve Tigner. And uh, guys, this week, uh, the Davis Cup final, uh, big news, obviously, Spain coming through and winning their fourth Davis Cup uh, of the decade. It's basically a Spanish dynasty at this point. I think we can call it that safely. They won in 2000, 04, 08, and 09 with a whole cast of characters. Um, obviously, this year we had uh, Rafa lead the way. Um, I mean, I was pretty impressed with this way they just dominated the Czech Republic. It was on clay, obviously, but Steve, I mean, what you watched it as well. I mean, what was your take as far as uh, just the way Spain just pretty much dominated? I think it's amazing that even after all these years, they're still interested. Rafa's still playing. Um, Ferrer, Lopez, Verdasco, Ferrero still wanted to play. He was the hero way back in 2000, but, you know, they've, they've had a lot of great players, but they've, they've also all stuck around and played each year, and that's, that's really it think the reason for the dynasty and it's I don't know it's uh, admirable and probably an underrated achievement and you know shouldn't be forgotten among the decades achievements I mean I think Pete you know it's just what Rafa's I, I, I know fixating on Rafa but I mean you know the way he just pours himself into this as Steve said and he really cares and, and the emotion on that bench watching Rafa I mean it was almost like he, at, at first you're like is he getting paid to look like he's rooting like that because he was after every point he's yelling at Ferrer like come on and he was really serious I thought was really into it, and just to see that is great. As opposed to you know Federer, who is you know not into it as much. I mean, I, I really appreciate that. Well, he's a team's best cheerleader as well as his best player, and usually the best cheerleader is up in row seventeen, you know, section G somewhere. Yeah. So yeah, that's no, he, he he's wonderful that way. I mean, that, that's a big deal. Now, you know, what's interesting I think about the Davis Cup is that the World Group play started in nineteen eighty one. That really was year one for Davis Cup. Granted, the U.S. has won twenty two. 32 Davis Cups. Australia has like 28. But that was back in a challenge round days when the winner sat out and you had to play your way through to be the finalist against the, against the holder. So really, you know, it's, it's actually, you know, Davis Cup really began after, you know, long after the Open Era began because that's when they went to the World Group in 81 when everybody had to play through a complete draw. So, you know, you can't underestimate this. And if you look at those records, you've got Sweden uh, has won six times and... Uh, Spain now has four just in his decade. Well, if you look at the breakdown of the decade, and Steve, I think you mentioned this in your blog this week, mm-hmm. um, the U.S. won three in a decade since 80. Um, Sweden won three in a decade. Sweden won three in the 80s, 80s and 90s. But this is the first time anybody's won four, stuck around and kept it going for four. And possibly five, because, you know, you got 2010 coming up. Uh, the other thing, uh, there's one other club in there that's got six, and I'm drawing a blank on who it is. The U.S. But has Four. The U.S. has four. The U.S. has been. Russia's only got two. Russia looked like they were going to dominate Davis Cup for a long time. So what Spain has done really has been a has been a real big effort here. What I love about this team was last year. You know, I mean, when you look at this run in this decade, no matter how this ends, whether they win it again next year or not, you got to look at last year. Going to Argentina without Nadal, they've got Del Potro. We know what he's all about. They have David Nalbandian. 
They were heavy, heavy underdogs, basically. Right, yeah. And they won that cup, and that was a tremendous testament to the spirit of that team and to the inspiration, partly that Nadal provided, but also that these guys wanted to show, hey, we're into this, we can do this for the home team. I think that's true for, with Nadal as well, because I, I talked to Verdasco in March, and he, he mentioned that one of the things that inspired him, he'd never really played as well as he did in that Davis Cup time, but one of the things that had inspired him was Nadal winning Wimbledon because it was something that he never expected a Spaniard to win Wimbledon. When he right. saw that, he said, well, you know, we can do anything. Yeah, I mean, and let, let's break down these matches real quick. Um, going into this tie, you had Nadal, and um, he, was the, he was the first match up. And, um, I mean, Pete, I mean, he, it was a very tense, you know, against Burdish, a very tense first set. Um, I, I mean, I thought he didn't look great, but it was on clay, obviously. So he was getting his footing as that, that set went on. And then after that, he just rolled Burdish once again, played, you know, pretty dumb tennis, missing a lot of shots, and showing once again that... He just can't win on the big stages, and Nadal seemed by the end of that match to, it's like, you forget all that fall stuff, all these indoor tournaments, and all that struggles Nadal had, all of a sudden it's like, okay, now, now Nadal's looking like maybe he's going to be a force again in Australia. I mean, what did you, what was you, what did you take away from that Well, match? I think that's true. The guy needed, the guy needed uh, just a shot of some love, you know, at the end of this year to really position himself mentally and, you know, even physically to some degree for, for what's coming up in just a couple of weeks when they start going down to Australia. And I think that was I think that was a pretty key thing. And, you know, it wasn't that easy a situation for Nadal. Whenever you go into Davis Cup tie, when you're at home, it's great. You're on your home court. you got all your adoring fans. But the big but is, especially when you're playing against a team like the Czech Republic, which really wasn't one of the favorites, they're playing with house money. You go out there, if you're a little bit tense or a little bit slow out of the gate or something, you know, you, you can let a match like that get away from you. And Burdick is the kind of guy, he can go out there and hit stone cold winners, you know, hour after hour on some occasions. I don't know about hour after hour. <laughs> well, <laughs> minute two and a half minute, sets like worth in a three-setter <laughs> and three and a half sets worth in a yeah, five-setter. But, yeah. yeah, no, I mean, I'm not saying Burdick. But Burdick is a dangerous player. No, the guy can definitely. play, he can tag the ball. He grew up on clay, but he's got, he's got a big game. So, you know, it wasn't the easiest situation for a guy like Nadal coming in Presumably with dented confidence and maybe even a lack of enthusiasm that he showed uh, at points right. during fall. Well, definitely when he was going in, he did a quick interview before he went on court, and he, and he just looked like he, he was like, yeah, maybe I'll help my team. No, I will go out and uh, you know do what I can. And then as that match wore on, you just saw, it just I guess it's the spirit of Davis Cup, how he just, he just got psyched up as it went along. And I, I, I don't know, Burdich just I thought that was, again, to lose a set at love at this level, Steve. I mean, yeah. to me that... I, I realize you, Nadal's number two in the world, great player, but to lose a set, well, I just thought it was pretty poor. Uh, well, well, just one more thing about Nadal. I think it was the the influence of Davis Cup um, that helped him because at, at the beginning of the match, he still looked down. He wasn't playing well, but he had sort of this look of like I'm going, I'm in Davis Cup. I'm going to do whatever it takes to wait out Burdich to to be patient. Yeah. It wasn't a look that he had in London, which was just, you know, he started poorly and you just knew he was not going to hang around in those matches. But this time he seemed resolved from the beginning. All right, I'm just going to, I'm going to hang around as long as I can. And, uh, and it worked. Yeah. And I think the highlight of the tie was certainly the next match. Uh, David Ferrer, the, the human backboard, the guy that gets everything back against the most charismatic player on the tour, as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> Roddick Stepanik. I mean, if no one watches this guy, I mean, I, he's got so many quirks. So many funny celebrations. He is the. He's got a throwback game. He comes in at Chris volleys. He's the most, for my money, the most entertaining player I'm watching right now. And he is. He is the best. Yeah, but you're watching geekdom defined, basically. <laughs> basically, but he throws out these weird, you know, weird. You know, he's signs. also. He's also the downside of entertainment too. Because I think he gets too into that. Well, he does, and and you pointed that out. I mean, he had a two set lead, and and he should have yeah. won that. I match. mean, he, the first two sets he was playing, that was like Federer, like tennis, and he should have pushed ahead to push through to the finish line to win, but. 
he's, he's very into his persona out there, and I don't know, to, to his detriment, I think. If anyone that does listen to this podcast knows what the V sign, he, he, he did an upside-down V with the uh, finger across it to his bench. Anarchy. That's what I thought it was, anarchy, <laughs> so that, the, that the worm is stirring it up. He's creating this <laughs> anarchy, you know, just to, to mess everybody up at Davis Cup. But, you know, give credit to Ferrer. I mean, he did what, you know, what usually wins at the rec level, Pete. He just he got a lot of balls back. He just didn't panic. I think he got some... Certainly Nadal was telling him that you can't quit. He was all over him for that entire match. But he, he stuck it out, and in a five-set match, that's what counts. Well, Davis Cup is different. That's another one of those things that really makes Davis Cup so great. You know, these guys, you, you're right about that. Nadal is out there. This guy's looking. This guy's playing like dog meat. And he's looking at Nadal, and Nadal is going, come on, get your crap together. I mean, you know, he's, yeah. you know and, and that's a big difference. you got to wonder, if, you, if that match takes place at the French Open or at the U.S. Open, Ferrer, you know, you know, is like, you know, losing that badly. The guy's pretty solid. You the know, U.S. Open, it's on court 25. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know, he's, you know he, so, you know, it's a bad day at the office. He still gets a big check. Davis Cup is different. He's saying, oh, my God, Nadal's looking at me from 10 feet away, and i got 25,000 people screaming and, you know, wanting me to do this. I better, you know, I better keep it together and at least make an effort to get through the thing, and you know, and making the effort is what lead, you know, is what leads to that kind of a comeback. It yeah. does make it special. I it's think. no coincidence that there's many more. I mean, the percentage of five set matches in Davis Cup compared to regular tournaments is much higher. Yeah, that's yeah. interesting. It'd be kind of an interesting stat to find out. You know, what the proportion of matches, how many of them played go to five sets. Well, it's just uh, you just get drama, and 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 I also thought just watching it, and I think you disagree with this, but watching the clay. Once again, I think it produces the best tennis, and I'm still on my harangue that I think the U.S. hardcourt circuit should go away for clay. I just think that the amount of drop shots and the crafty tennis that I saw just over those three days was, was much more entertaining than what you'll see on a fast hardcourt anytime. Well, maybe, but I mean, I still like the fact that you ought to be rewarded for playing bold, aggressive tennis, and I think that's a little bit lacking. That's, you know, that's a little bit lacking on clay, and Nadal's mastery of Federer at the French Open, I think, kind of shows that. I mean, I have all the respect in the world for Nadal, but you've got to reward a guy who's going to, you know, go for a, a, you know, a really tricky shot and maybe come in and try to volley away a winner, and on clay, it just, and it gets harder and harder to do all the time. Even though the game is better on clay now, certainly, than it was 30 years ago. Well, they hit so hard now, too, that you get more of a balanced game on clay. But uh, that's for another discussion for another time. But certainly I think we can conclude with the doubles win. Spain is the Davis Cup dynasty for this decade. And uh, let's just preview real quick some of the the more interesting ties going into the first round next year, 2010. Um, U.S. will go to Serbia, Steve. What do you think of that, just generally? Well, I guess we'll see whether Andy Roddick plays. Um, Good question. I don't know if there's... A question about that. I've, there's been some talk about him not playing, but um, you have Roddick, Djokovic, Tipsarevic, and probably Sam Querrey um, must be on a clay court, which which the U.S. rarely wins on clay. So you have to. I, I think you have to look at Serbia as as a favorite in that. Yeah. Um, then we got Argentina going to Sweden, Pete. Argentina going to Sweden. That's going to be interesting. I mean, the Swedes, I think Argentina basically has a talent, so no matter who they send, they can, uh, they can handle Sweden these days other than the, 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 the key soldering factor. That's what's going to you know, maybe make a difference for Sweden in that time. But they got Del, po- Del Potro for Argentina now, so I think that negates that soldering factor a bit. Well, it will, but that's going to be the marquee matchup. That could be the marquee matchup of the first round of Davis Cup. <clears throat> Del Potro against Soderling in Sweden. It's, you know, the fact that it's in Sweden is going to level the playing field. Soderling closed out the year, pretty much convinced everybody that that great run he had starting at the French Open where he upset Nadal in the fourth round, that, you know, he's, gonna, that he's really built on that. You know, you've got to love the guy for being able to take a win like that. A lot of guys, you get a win like that, 
Maybe they do well in the next tournament. Then by you know, then by the summer or a couple months down the road, they're right back where they started. They're losing to Thomas Burdick to pick yep. your favorite player. But, that's right. Yeah. <coughs> you know, but but you know, Soderling managed to build on it. You know, he said, okay, that's a start. You know, that's not the end of something. It's the beginning of something. And so that could really pay off in Davis Cup too. The guys and the guys got enough of a kind of a junkyard dog mentality. So he's going to be a very tough Davis competitor, I think. Yeah, and I think the, the what would have been the marquee matchup would have been. Uh, these two guys, Rafa and Roger, playing Spain at home against Switzerland, but Rafa, Roger's not going to play as as of this point. Um, but you got to figure that on clay, Spain without Federer, that you know if he doesn't play, that'll obviously look good for Spain to continue their run in Davis Cup. And on that note, before we leave everybody for the podcast, I know that uh, want to talk about one thing that I know has been on Pete's mind and probably about a million other people's minds, which is Roger's uh, buddy, Tiger Woods, Pete. Um, Man, you know, I'd hate to be I Roger call it the Gillette that. curse is what I'm saying because you got the Gillette sponsors, Henri, the hand of frog. You've got Now you've got Tiger going off a cliff with uh, his, his ten, uh, 10 women. Federer, is he next? Well, did you know that Federer, they, somebody called Federer when, after Tiger was... After after his accident, and asked if Federer Roger knew anything about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, right now you got to figure Mirk has got him sat down in a hotel room. I just got his legs strapped. She got his arms strapped to a chair, and she said, "Okay, remember that Thursday night at the U.S. Open in 2007? Right. You right. said you and Tiger were going to go. Where did you and Tiger go then?" <laughs> well, this just makes Roger look, you know, like more of a saint than ever. Oh, absolutely. If that's we possible. don't really uh, suspect him of any of this. I got a question: When did Tiger have time to play golf? <laughs> I mean, it's unbelievable. He's made a difficult life for himself. You know, in all seriousness, though, it, it does underscore something. You know, and, and it's something we've touched on in the past. You know, we've written about it in the magazine and stuff. You know, tennis is. You know, despite these things that come up, it's a relatively clean sport in this regard. We, you know, you don't have these huge stories coming out of tennis you know granted Andre's revelations about having used crystal meth you know sent shockwaves through the sporting community but basically these guys you know you, you know knock one and, and plus you know you, you never know what's going to happen but you know you, you don't see Federer you know ending up in, in some situation like this and the tennis players I think and it's historically have always been you know they've always been one of the more upstanding pro athletes you know they don't get into these scandals I don't so. think it's quite as much a sport of divas as as some of the other yeah. Big American sports. Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's you know they they take care of themselves for the most part. Obviously, the top players have their entourages, but you know they don't. I mean, the women. I guess there's more of a diva factor there, but even there, it seems to be the the dads and the coaches that are more yeah. the, the the headline grabbers and the, the players themselves. I mean, you don't see a lot of paternity suits being filed against top tennis players. You know, you don't you don't. Well, given their travel, that could be. <laughs> and that could, well, you know, we, we had an issue in Sweden, of course. We don't, we don't need to talk about that. We're going to show how clean the game is. but uh, yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, the, we, we don't have the scales. And, and that's a good note to end on. Um, join us next week because we're going to be breaking down um, our most memorable moments for the year 2010 and, and uh, reliving some of uh, the best times on tour. And with that, uh, joining me, Peter Bodo and Steve Tigner, I'm James Martin, and uh, we'll see you again. Thanks for listening, guys. You've been enjoying Tennis.com's weekly podcast. Thanks for listening. For all the latest news and events, head over to Tennis.com.